0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thanks, uh, everyone, for coming. Um, The Joseph L. Lucia Memorial Lecture Series is sponsored by the Economics Department at the Villanova School of Business, and it's delivered annually by an influential and distinguished economist. The series is named for the department's late colleague, Professor Joseph L. Lucia, uh, an alumnus of Philadelphia's Northeast Catholic High School for boys and Temple University, Joe went on to earn his PhD in economics from the University of Pennsylvania. He was a distinguished member of the economics department for nearly 30 years. Joe's untimely passing in 1998 at the, age, I'm sorry, 1988 at the age of 56 represented a major loss for the university. The lecture series, which bears Joe's name, actually began with his vision and planning, and we're hopeful that he'll be proud of what it has become. Past speakers in the series comprise a list of names well-known to any economist, including James Tobin, Alan Blinder, Paul Krugman, Robert Barrow, Frederick Mishkin, Joseph Stiglitz, John Taylor, and Dale Mortensen. Uh, before I begin, I would like to extend thanks and recognize uh, people uh, who uh, helped organize and plan this event. Um, uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Patrick Majetti, Dean of the uh, Villanova School of Business. And- Dr. Wen Mao, Chairman of the Economics Department. (laughs) Miss Louise Griffin, who's not here, but she's at the Connolly Center and helped us um, secure these facilities. And uh, Bill Stewart, uh, class of 88, whose generous uh, financial support allows us to continue the high quality of this lecture series. Tonight we're very happy to have Anne Gregory Mankiw as our speaker for this year's Lucia Lecture. Professor Mankiw is the Robert N. Burren Professor of Economics and Chair of the Economics Department at Harvard University. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and has been advisor to the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston and the Congressional Budget Office. From 2003 to 2005 he served as Chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Professor Mankiw is a prolific writer and a regular participant in academic and policy debates. His research includes works on price adjustment, financial markets, monetary and fiscal policy, and economic growth. His published articles have appeared in academic journals, such as the American Economic Review, the Journal of Political Economy, and Quarterly Journal of Economics, and in more widely accessible forums, including the New York Times, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and Fortune. He also runs one of the most popular economic blogs in in the country. Mm -hmm. Professor Mankiw has written two popular textbooks, the intermediate level textbook Macroeconomics and the introductory textbook Principles of Economics, which has sold over a million copies around the world and has been translated into 20 languages. The topic of tonight's lecture is The Fiscal Challenges Ahead. Without further delay, please give a warm welcome to Professor Ann Gregory Mankiw. Thank you
1: very much. It's uh, great to be here and to see so many people taking the time out to listen about e- economics. Um, it's been a tough time uh, for the economy the past few years, as, as, as you all know. But it hasn't been a bad time to be an economist. Uh, one of my colleagues at Harvard likes to point out that being an economist during an economic downturn is a little bit like being an undertaker during a plague. Uh, times are uh, tough but business is good and uh, and certainly for those of us who make our living um, try to understand the ups and downs of the economy, there's been a lot of demand for our services to try to understand what's been going on and uh, what we should to do looking forward. What I'd like to do today is talk about some of the uh, bigger challenges we face in particular with regard to fiscal policy. I'll make some passing reference to monetary policy but most of my Comments are going to be on fiscal policy. There's so much to talk about there that I'm going to try to stay focused, and I'm going to try to be more forward-looking than backward-looking. That is, rather than looking at what things we might have done over the past few years, uh, I want to look about forward to the kinds of challenges we face over the over the next few years, over the next few decades. Uh, uh, there, there, there is no doubt that there's lots of issues we face, and there's lots of pitfalls we want to avoid, let me summarize the basic issues we face in the following way. If you think of the four big risks we face, you can basically describe them as follows. First of all, we don't want to end up being like Japan. Secondly, we don't want to end up being like France. Third, we don't want to end up being like Greece. And fourth, we don't want to end up being like Zimbabwe. So let me try to talk about what I mean by those four risks and, and ha- how other countries have gone astray and what policy is trying to do to uh, address that. Well, let me start off by talking about Japan first. When I say we don't end up being like Japan, what's happened to, J- to Japan is they had a collapse of a, of a bubble, a real estate bubble, and they had a decade of low growth and high unemployment and f- monetary policy hitting pretty much against the zero lower bound, that is interest rates pretty much at zero. And that is the situation that we have faced in the United States over the past several years. What monetary and fiscal policymakers have focused on over the past several years is try to avoid that. And indeed, I think it's a fair summary of thinking about macro policy since President Obama took office, is that what he, the President and the Federal Reserve have been trying to do is avoid the United States turning to Japan. So what we've seen is very aggressive fiscal policy, Increases in government spending, cuts in taxes and very aggressive monetary policy all aimed at trying to get the aggregate demand for goods and services up in order to get unemployment down and the economy producing closer to its potential uh, level of GDP. Monetary policy has been extremely aggressive in the sense not only of cutting interest rates as much as it possibly could all the way to zero but pursuing a variety of unconventional kinds of policy by buying mortgage-backed securities, buying long-term government bonds, in order to reduce not only the traditional federal funds rate, which is the traditional target of the Federal Reserve, but also to, to cut longer-term interest rates, such as mortgage rates and other long-term uh, interest rates. The basic issue, for those of you who have taken principles or intermediate level macroeconomics, is that of aggregate demand management getting aggregate demand back up. It's basically a Keynesian theory of operating at a supercharged level. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time commenting on, on that. It's not my issue, to, my primarily issue today. But I do just wanna point out that there's a lot of controversy about uh, whether this, this has been the right thing to do. Uh, one, of, one of the principles I run, I, I use when I organize my own introductory economics course is I try to start the course with things where I'm really sure are right. And as the course goes on, I cover topics that are more and more controversial among economists. So I start off by talking about supply and demand, the theory of comparative advantage in international trade, profit maximization. And I'm really sure when I teach that stuff that we're right. And I'm absolutely positive that 100 years from now, when we economists look back, we're going to be sure that we were correct in saying that you maximize profit by setting marginal revenue equal marginal cost. I'm absolutely sure that's correct. But towards the end of my course, I cover macroeconomics. And within macroeconomics, one of the last things I cover is the theory of the business cycle and Keynesian economics. And I do that because not only is this one of the more complicated things to cover in the principles course, but I think it's also one of the least certain things we cover. It's one of the most tentative areas of knowledge. It's what's the right theory of the business cycle? What's the right theory of short-run monetary and fiscal policy? And while I believe a lot of Keynesian economics, I'm the first to admit that. It's controversial among professional economists, and therefore, when we teach it, we should teach it with a requisite degree of humility. And I'm a, I'm a big believer that when we economists aren't sure about something, we should admit it and say we're not sure. Say this is our best guess, but we're not sure. And we're not really sure about a lot of short-term monetary and fiscal policy. And as a result, I think there's room for reasonable people and reasonable economists to disagree about what the right course has been over the past uh, few years. But as I said, that's not my topic for today. Um, I'm not going to talk about the 2009 stimulus and the debate over that. I think that's that's an important debate, but let's leave that for another day. I want to talk about a variety of longer-run issues that we might face. And part of that, my desire to think about longer-run issues is perhaps due to my own personal political perspective. Um, uh, Victor didn't mention this, but um, I am an an, an advisor to Mitt Romney, which will give you some sense of my personal uh, politics. Uh, I say that though with somewhat caution because I don't want you to think that anything I'm saying here is a, uh, is necessarily Romney policy. In fact, many things I say here will definitely not be Romney policy. Uh, in one of the uh, primary debates, I Mitt mean, Romney was asked, uh, you know, what, what economists do you talk to in formulating your views? And he was kind enough to, to mention me in, in that debate. His very next sentence after he mentioned my name was, but of course I don't agree with everything he says. Which is a very wise thing to say, because I have lots of views that no politician who actually wants to get elected would necessarily hold, <laughs> as will become clear in the next uh, 45 minutes. But anyway, so, I, I, so I'm a Romney advisor, and so that sort of pegs me a little bit of a, a sort of right of center, and I'll, I'll, I'll admit to that. And I, when I think about why I end up right of center, I'm reminded of a, uh, an old test from Charlie Schultz. Charlie Schultz, for those of you who don't know, is a a well-known economist at Brookings Institution. He was the chief economist to Jimmy Carter. uh, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisers during the Carter administration. And he had a simple test for whether an economist was a liberal or a conservative. And here's his test. I want you to fill in the following sentence with the words long and short. Here's here, uh, there'll be two blanks, and you've got to fill in the, use the word long ones and use the word short ones. Take care of the blank run, and the blank run will take care of itself. <laughs> okay, so what Charlie said was that if you're a liberal, you're more likely to think, take care of the short run, and the long run will take care of itself. Worry about short run demand management, worry about putting people back to work, and eventually we'll. If you get a series of short runs right, eventually the long run will be be fine. The most extreme form of that is, of course, Keynes' old quip, in the long run we're all dead. Um, uh, Which is something only a man without children would say. Uh, But Charlie then went on to say, but conservatives have a different point of view. Their view is take care of the long run, and the short run will take care of itself. Meaning if we put fundamentals in place to create long run economic growth, that will create confidence in the short run, and it will lead to a good short-run economy as well, but really we should keep our mind focused on the long-run challenges and not on the short-run challenges. Now, of course, any good economist will tell you that, a, that neither is completely correct, that a good economist thinks about both the short-run and the long-run. But I think Charlie, who was, who was a liberal, I think had it basically right. If you want a simple one test, sort of a Rorschach test, whether an economist is more liberal or more conservative, Ask them whether they should take care of the short run or take care of the long run as the primary focus. So most of what I want to talk about today is long run issues. And uh, that's perhaps reflects a little bit my uh, personal bias as being a, a slightly right of uh, center. Okay, so what long run issues do we need to face? First, we don't want to be like Zimbabwe. And what do I mean by that? Well, those of you who haven't been following the economics of the Zimbabwe economy over the past few years, I'm going to say it's most of you. Um, We'd be interested to know that Zimbabwe has experienced one of the classic examples of hyperinflation, where if you, I, when I teach this in my, in my, to my students at Harvard, what I show them is what the typical unit of Zimbabwe currency looks like. So you start off with a $20 Zimbabwe dollar note and then a 2000 Zimbabwe dollar note and a you know. A, hundred thousand dollars Zimbabwe note that millions of dollars Zimbabwe note finally they issued trillion dollars Zimbabwe notes and people were carrying around trillion dollar notes that is a classic example of hyperinflation when um, uh, the prices are so out of control that the, the, the currency you need to carry around is literally going to the trillions in my textbook I have reprinted this, this photo from a Zimbabwe public restroom it's, it's it's behind the toilet the sign said only toilet paper in this in this um, toilet, don't throw cardboard or Zimbabwe dollars. <laughs> so how did they get this classic hyperinflation? Well, they clock this is classic hyperinflation through a very traditional channel. We, we have, this is one thing the economists really understand. How do you hyperinflate an economy? Well, here's what you do. You run large budget deficits. You don't have enough credit rating <coughs> to be able to borrow the, the difference between spending and tax revenue. And you make up for the shortfall by just printing dollars. As if you just print enough dollars, those dollars lose value fast enough that you get hyperinflation. And that's exactly what uh, Zimbabwe did. Now, there are a few economists floating around, not many, but there are some people floating around who think that, gosh, is the United States on the way to Zimbabwe? What do they notice? They notice that we have very large budget deficits. There doesn't seem to be a plan to get them under control. The Federal Reserve is buying lots of that government debt that's being issued. And as a result, there's expanding the monetary base, one measure of the money supply. And they fear that once the current unusual circumstance dissipates, once the, the current crisis dissipates, that, that expansion of the monetary base will eventually lead to hyperinflation. And indeed, I in, in, in sort of Googling sort of this issue once, I sort of stumbled upon a website, I think the US, something, the organization called something like the US Inflation Society or something of that na- nature in which they were it was a a group dedicated to helping Americans get ready for the coming hyperinflation. Now, I'm actually not concerned uh, about this, but I think some of the Fed critics who have, are worried, people like Ron Paul, who who are worried about the Fed debasing the currency, worried about excessive Fed activism, are thinking that we're moving down the path to becoming a little bit like Zimbabwe. Now, I'm not worried about that, and Ben Bernanke's not worried about that, if I thought it was true, of course, I'd be very worried about that. That would be a terrible outcome. But I don't think we're, we're going to do that. And Ben Bernanke believes that while it's true that the, the uh, money supply, monetary base has been expanding, it has not yet been inflationary and probably will not be inflationary as long as he has an appropriate exit strategy in mind. And uh, uh, Ben Bernanke believes that, by, that, that as the economy recovers and as interest rates need to rise, he will be able to rise interest rates, he will be able to prevent that expansion of the monetary base from becoming inflationary. I basically think Bernanke's right, but again, that's not a topic for today, not monetary policy. But it's one of the issues we need to think about in terms of what things we want to avoid. We want to avoid being Japan, of having uh, a period of low growth because of inadequate aggregate demand. We also want to avoid being Zimbabwe, of sort of inflating our way into uh, hyperinflation. The two bigger issues that I want to spend today Talking to you about are Greece and France. As you know, Greece has recently experienced s- significant debt problems, where it was very clear that Greece had for many years been spending much more, they take tax revenue, put themselves on an unsustainable course. As a result, the interest rates rose substantially on Greek debt, which of course puts more pressure on the budget deficit, and eventually Greece decided that this whole thing was unsustainable and that couldn't survive without either a default or a bailout from the richer European countries like uh, Germany and France. This is not a path that we want to follow. We don't want to follow a path where the United States is viewed as, uh, as untenable, where eventually we're going to default on our debts. We don't want to go through the, the, the pain that Greece has been going through the past few years. Now, some economists say, you don't need to worry about this, just look at the interest rates on long-term government bonds, no one thinks the United States is going to default. No one thinks we could go the path of Greece. But, of course, five years ago, nobody thought Greece was going to go down the path of Greece. But Greece did. So that raises the question of why is it that we face such low long-term interest rates if we're on this unsustainable path? That is, the United States is borrowing lots of money, has not established a path to put this borrowing back in, under control, has not figured out a way to pay off these debts in the long run, Yet somehow the bond markets of the world are ready to loan us money at interest rates that are extraordinarily low. Why is that? Well, I think Churchill had the right idea. Churchill once said, Winston Churchill once said about Americans, Americans can always be counted on doing the right thing after exhausting all their alternatives. <laughs> and what we've been doing for the past five or ten years about the budget deficit, maybe even longer is exhausting the alternatives. What we do not have is a a path to to sustainability, but the bond market is betting that we'll eventually get there. After we exhaust all the alternatives, we'll eventually do the right thing. And so the question is what that right thing is. So right now, if I face a large budget deficit, how are we going to get this budget deficit under control without going the path of Greece, eventually throwing our hands and defaulting? Oh, and by the way, unlike Greece, who presumably can turn to richer neighbors to be bailed out, I don't think if we ever go and find ourselves in that situation, we're going to turn to Canada to bail us out, or Mexico. So I don't think, I think if, if, if we ever get to the price of Greece, we only have, we'll have only one alternative, which is default, which is not a pretty, uh, uh, picture a bailout just doesn't look feasible. Okay, well, how do we find ourselves in this situation? Well, the long-term fiscal picture is basically driven not primarily by the short-run uh, financial crisis and recession, although it, that has exacerbated it, but it's driven primarily by longer-term trends that have been in place for a while, that economists have been watching for a while with some concern, but which become increasingly dire as the, the circumstances get closer. And in particular, the circumstances are twofold. First, it's an aging population, and secondly, it's rising health care costs. So what do I mean by an aging population? Well, essentially, we're living longer than we ever have before due to advances in healthcare technology, and we have, we're having fewer births than we had before. Those people, family sizes have been shrinking over time. And the combination of people living longer at the back end and fewer people coming in at the front end means that the average, average person in the United States is going to be older. And in particular, the percentage of the population that's above age 65 is growing, and growing quite substantially. <coughs> Why is that relevant for the federal budget? Well, it's relevant for the federal budget because we have a variety of programs, often referred to as entitlement programs, that provide significant benefits to the elderly automatically. That is, unless we make some change in the law, more elderly will become eligible for these programs and start drawing on these benefits, and government spending will automatically rise. <coughs> Those programs are three. First, Social Security, which is the the pension program for the elderly. The second is Medicare, which is the health care program for the elderly. And the third is Medicaid, which is the health care program for the poor. But many of the poor who are serviced by Medicaid are the elderly poor who become eligible for nursing home coverage. So as we have an increasingly old population, spending on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid will inexorably rise. But secondly, much of the spending we do on the elderly, particularly in Medicare and Medicaid, is on health care. And the price of health care has been rising over time. And as a result, government spending on these health programs will automatically rise over time. So even if taxes as a percentage of GDP are at their historical average, Spending will automatically, unless we do some change in policy, spending will automatically rise outstrip tax revenue. As a result, budget deficits will get larger and larger, even if the economy approaches full employment again. And as a result, we'll be borrowing more and more, until at some point we'll either have to change course or become Greece. So let's talk about what changing course is going to look like, because I think we can all agree that becoming Greece is not a good outcome. first thing we can do is think about the spending side. When you're thinking about a budget deficit, there's really two things you can think about. You can think about spending, or you can think about tax revenue. Maybe the budget deficit is simply the, the difference between those two. And so what I want to do first is think about um, the spending side, and then I will think about the tax, uh, tax revenue side. So first, this, the spending side. What should we do? Well, Social Security. This is one of the easier problems we face compared to some of the other ones which are more difficult. But it's one that's still going to be politically very difficult. People paid into the system when they turn uh, become eligible at age 65 or 70, whenever they want to draw benefits. They expect a certain level of benefits they've been promised all along. And those be- the amount of benefits we're going to pay in Social Security will rise as more people become eligible. So what can we do? Well, there's a variety of things we can do on the spending side that cha- basically involves paying less to the elderly. Let me suggest two that have some appeal and have been talked about. One is changing the indexing rules that determine benefits. Under the current system, those people who've earned more over their lifetime pay yet more and get more out. One of the ideas that has been proposed is that changing the indexing rules for Social Security benefits that in a way that would basically flatten the benefits. By that I mean you basically be cutting benefits for Individuals who over the lifetime have had higher income. So the difference in benefits between a high income recipient and a low income recipient would be smaller, it would be flatter benefits. So somebody, the, a low income person, would, would have their benefits preserved, but high income people would, would, would experience lower, uh, lower benefits. A second idea that has been, while they talked about, is an increase in the retirement age. One of the reasons this has some appeal is that life expectancy has been rising over time. And what might make sense to increase the retirement age in tandem with increases in life expectancy. Indeed, if this program was originally put in place in the 1930s, had indexed the age of eligibility for these benefits to life expectancy, spending on these programs today would be much lower. And so the idea is to slowly raise the retirement age and then maybe eventually index it to life expectancy. So as we live longer and longer, we also work longer and longer, as opposed to just retiring for longer and longer. Now, I should note that raising the retirement age is something that seems much more popular among economists than the general public.
0: <laughs>
1: I've seen, actually, polls of this, both with the general public and uh, economists, and the economists tend to think it's a good idea, uh, the general public thinks it's a terrible idea, uh, and that's probably one of the reasons why it's pretty rare to see politicians who are more likely to want to appeal to the general public than economists, uh, advancing the idea forcefully. But if you think about it, the idea of raising the retirement age has, makes a lot of sense, in the sense that we are living longer, and we're living healthier as a society. We're moving more and more to a service-based economy, from a, an economy that relies on manufacturing and other physical jobs. And this idea that we should ask people to work a little bit longer, um, uh, I think, makes some sense. And after all, if we're going to cut benefits for someone. It makes more sense to cut benefits for someone who's the young old who can still work, rather than for the old old, the 85, 90 year old who really can't work. And so, asking the sort of the 65 year old to work to 67 or 69 seems to me more compassionate than telling the 90 year old, "I'm sorry, we're going to pay you uh, a little less." I also infer from this that economists must like their jobs better than average, <coughs> which is probably true judging the economists that that, that I know. So I think there are things we can do to help to put Social Security on a more sound foundation and put the long-term budget on a sound foundation. But as many people have pointed out, that's only a part of the picture. So a much larger part of the picture is healthcare spending on Medicare and Social Security. Here the issues are much more complicated. Social Security is sort of a simple issue. Social Security is basically a system where you take money from some people and give it to some other people. And when we talk about reducing spending on it, it means just giving them less. Healthcare involves... How you organize an industry, and as a result, it involves some fundamental questions of uh, industrial organization and what kind of regulation of this fairly complicated industry is, is going to be most likely to rationalize spending. Now, in the public debate over healthcare, there's basically there's two uh, broad approaches that have been talked about. I like to think of them as the top-down approach and the bottom-up approach. The top-down approach uh, is implicit in uh, President Obama's uh, health reform bill. What the health reform bill did is create a panel called the Independent Payment Advisory Board that creates this panel that will have, then have the power to propose reforms. So this panel is basically 15 experts, doctors, health economists, policy wonks of other sorts, the idea is to look at the healthcare system and figure out ways to save uh, on costs. Now, critics of this say this is too much centralized government power. The extreme critics call this death panels. But the basic idea is to look at the system, and saying yes, there's some things we're paying for that we shouldn't be paying for that doesn't pass a cost-benefit test. And if we get very smart people to study the system systematically, they should be able to weed out inefficiencies and get rid of them. Now, very different model has been suggested by Paul Ryan, the vice presidential candidate to Mitt Romney when he was congressman, he proposed a system, which I think of, up, think of as a bottom-up system, he calls it premium support. And the basic idea is, is that you would turn traditional Medicare from its current defined benefit system into something more like a defined contribution system, where you would get a certain number of dollars that you could use to buy health care. Healthcare insurance policy from a system of competing providers, and Ryan's vision is that choice and competition among private insurers will work to rationalize the system and drive costs down. So those are the two sort of visions of how to reduce healthcare costs that were proposed by the right and the left of the political spectrum. Let me point out there's a commonality between these two visions. Both the top-down people and the bottom-up people believe it is possible to reduce healthcare costs significantly without jeopardizing the quality of care. So in some sense, there's a certain optimism on both sides. They share an optimism that a better system would just give us better results for lower cost, or as good results for lower cost. Let me be a little bit of a pessimist here and suggest that maybe both sides are wrong. I hope I'm wrong about this, by the way, but my fear is that perhaps there is no way to reduce costs significantly without jeopardizing the quality of care. And let me say why I think this hypothesis is, is, is merits uh, consideration. What is the main reason that healthcare costs have been rising over time? Healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP uh, was something like four or five percent when I was born and it was something like 15 to 17% of GDP today. So it's roughly tripled the size of the economy. Why is that? Is that we have vastly more bureaucrats and inefficiency in the system, that we've tripled the amount of inefficiency? So two thirds of what we do in the healthcare system is just a complete waste? No. I think the main reason why healthcare spending as a percentage of GDP has gone up <coughs> is that technology has given us more and better ways to prolong and enhance the quality of life. Let me say that again, technology has given us more and better ways to prolong and enhance the quality of life. This is a good thing. We have all sorts of great things we can do when you get sick that we couldn't have done 50 years ago. Now one question when I say that, people always say, well, shouldn't technology drive costs down? Shouldn't technology make things cheaper, not more expensive? And the answer is yes, in general technology drives costs down, but that doesn't mean it drives spending down. Ask yourself the following question, how much do you spend on computers in the average year? and other electronic devices like that, computing devices. And how much did your grandparents spend on computers and other electronic devices when they were your age? They said they probably didn't spend any. And the reason they didn't spend any is because the technology made it so prohibitively expensive that only, like, NASA could have computers back then. You couldn't have such things for computers. Well, now we have things that are available, and therefore we spend money on it. Well, similarly with healthcare, with all sorts of things, MRI machines, all sorts of complicated medical procedures, that we'd spend money on that weren't available a generation ago. That's a good thing, but doesn't come for free. And fundamentally, that's, I think, the driver of increasing healthcare costs. It's technology that's that, that's valuable, we're glad it's there, but it doesn't come uh, for free. So there is the question of, could healthcare spending keep rising as a share of GDP? There are economists who think it can. There's an article by Chad Jones and Robert Hall both at Stanford who, who've who argued, based on their model, that they think a generation from now, healthcare spending will not be 15 to 70 percent of GDP. It'll be 30 percent of GDP, and may continue to rise. And they say, think there's nothing wrong with that. Now, I, I was writing an article for the New York Times once, and I sort of cited this, uh, this 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 projection in my article. And my editor in the New York Times said, "That's ridiculous. We can't possibly live in a society where healthcare spending is 30 percent of GDP." Of course, why not? Why couldn't we? I mean, When we were back when it was 5% of GDP, we probably couldn't have imagined 15%. Why couldn't it be 30% of GDP a generation from now, or 50% of the generation after that? The way Holland Jones put it is the following. Imagine as we get richer as a society, which we have over time because of productivity growth. As we get richer as a society, how do we want to spend our increased income? Do you really need yet another bathroom in your house? Do you really need an even bigger TV? Some things run into diminishing margin utility. Number of toilets is probably one of them. But years of life, that doesn't seem to run into diminishing margin utility quite so much. Very few people said, oh, want to live living extra year? now. I've got to have enough, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's true that other things we buy with our income run into diminishing margin utility more than years of life, then maybe as we get richer, spending more and more money on years of life makes sense. And spending a higher and higher percentage of GDP makes sense. But that raises questions of how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for uh, all that uh, good stuff? And this is going to raise tremendous questions about inequality. Because we have a society of a lot of inequality. And in particular, as healthcare spending goes up as a percentage of income, that inequality will loom larger in our lives. It's one thing when inequality manifests itself when some people have more bathrooms in the house than others. But it's a little more painful when it manifests itself that some people get better care than others. So here's, here's a hypothetical example I used in another New York Times column that I want you to think about. Imagine the following healthcare technology. Imagine somebody invents a pill, which I will call the Dorian Gray pill. For those of you who remember the Oscar Wilde story, you'll know what I mean. But here's what the Dorian Gray pill does. Take one of these pills every morning, and that day you won't get sick. You won't die. You won't even age. It's the perfect healthcare technology. Just take one a day, you're immortal. But here's the rub the Dorian Gray Pill costs a lot to manufacture. It costs, let's say, $100,000 a year to manufacture a year's supply. So let's suppose we had that technology available today. So what does that mean? Well, Bill Gates gets to live forever. $100,000 a year? That's not so much for him. Even a fairly successful corporate lawyer could live forever. $100,000 a year may be a lot, but for immortality, maybe you wouldn't pay it. But the median person couldn't pay it, right? The median person makes $40,000, $50,000 a year. So $100,000 a year of immortality is not feasible. You just can't do it. So if we had this technology that for $100,000 a year, you could live forever, how would we handle that as a society? Would we say, OK, if you can afford it, you can live forever. Otherwise, goodbye we say, I'm sorry, that's just not fair, not gonna let people live forever? What would we do? Now, of course, we don't have that technology, we're not on the verge of that technology, but that, I believe, is technology that we were slowly, asymptotically approaching. That as healthcare spending is getting better and better and more and more expensive, and we're gonna face the question of, okay, if that's the case, how are we gonna allocate that? Are we gonna say, everybody gets the same, in which case taxes have to go up higher and higher to pay for it, or are we gonna say, well, if you can afford it, you can get it, otherwise not. Otherwise, you just get basic health care. That is a very difficult question. I don't think anybody in the political realm, either on the right or left, really wants to come to grips with, because the choices are painful. It basically means either a slow march towards larger and larger government. As healthcare care spending grows, and if the government's going to pay PRT for everyone, the government has to get bigger and bigger. Or it's going to mean tremendous inequality, not only the number of bathrooms and the fanciness of your car, but in your, in your life expectancy, which we already have to some degree, but even greater in health outcomes. So I think we face some very difficult choices uh, going forward. Okay, so that's what I want to say about spending. Those are sort of the issues that we're going to think about in terms of government spending. What about the other side of the equation, increased tax revenue? How about we balance this budget that we face by getting more tax revenue in? Uh, well, there's a variety of th- ideas that are on the table, so let me sort of talk about them. One idea that's been on the table of economists and policy wonks is the idea of basic tax reform, of raising revenue through basic tax reform. This is an idea that was proposed by George Bush's tax reform panel back in the, uh, during the previous administration. And it's been proposed by the Bull Simpson uh, deficit commission proposed by President, uh, appointed by President Obama during this administration. And the basic idea of tax reform is that what we should do is raise tax revenue and lower tax rates by broadening the tax base. That is eliminating what is sometimes called loopholes, but to be somewhat less pejorative about it, eliminating things, certain deductions and exclusions that allow people to avoid paying taxes on certain forms of compensation. And then the question is what becomes what's a what deduction is a loophole, unjustifiable loophole, and what deduction is a justifiable deduction and and that, of course, is in the eye of the beholder. So let me sort of talk about some of these that have been talked about. The mortgage interest deduction. If you buy a house in this country and you borrow the money to buy that house, the interest payment that you pay on that mortgage is de- is deducted against your taxes. Should that be gotten rid of? Well, economists have long thought that the mortgage interest deduction does not make a lot of sense. Why do they say that? Well, there's two goals we think about in designing the tax code. One is equality, One is efficiency. It seems that the mortgage interest deduction satisfies neither. It does not satisfy equality concerns, because in fact, it tends to be richer people who take out bigger mortgages and get more benefit from the mortgage interest deduction. It tends to be richer people who are more likely to own their own homes, and the poor are more likely to be renters. So the mortgage interest deduction is a deduction that tends to benefit higher income people more than middle and lower income people. Now you might think that was justifiable if it had some efficiency benefit, but in fact it has an efficiency cost. By subsidizing homeownership, what it does is it encourages people to live in bigger homes than they might otherwise, and that takes some of the stock of wealth we have in the, in the economy and directs it from business capital toward residential capital. Business capital is where it can increase worker productivity, help create jobs, and raise real wages. But it means instead of having that, we have bigger, bigger houses. So it seems that the mortgage interest deduction doesn't seem to be desirable from an efficiency standpoint or from an equality standpoint, yet it's there. Why is it there? Well, because a lot of voters like it, because they're homeowners. And the, the real estate industry likes it, because they, obviously, have a vested interest in homeownership. But maybe if we could trade the mortgage interest deduction for lower rates, we can maybe move to a tax code that both raises more revenue and does so with less more efficiency and more equality. I'll give you another example of a of a uh, loophole or justifiable deduction, depending on your point of view. The deduction for state and local taxes. Is it a good idea that when you collect your federal when you pay your federal taxes, you deduct your state and local taxes from your income to compute your compute taxable income? Well, imagine there's two towns. Living side by side, one town decides to have high property taxes and provide things like a town pool, town tennis courts, and all sorts of other recreational facilities. Another town decides to say, "Well, we're not going to provide that. If you want a pool, you can join a private pool. If you're in a court, you want tennis courts, join a private tennis club. We're going to let the private sector do that, so we're going to have lower taxes." Should the federal government be subsidizing the first town at the expense of the second town? Well, that's what we have in our current tax system, because you get the tax deduction. Uh, for state and local taxes, it basically means that high-tax states and localities are being subsidized at the expense of low-tax states and localities. Again, I think there's an equity and perhaps even an efficiency case for um, getting into that one. Health insurance exclusion. Most fringe benefits, unless it's particularly related to your work, are taxable compensation. So if your employer decides to say, oh, by the way, it's part of your job, I'm going to pay your auto, give you auto insurance, Part of job, I'm going to your job, and give you homeowner's insurance for, for fire, because your house burns down. The ins- insurance you get is going to be taxable compensation to you. It's not particularly related to your job, but it's just a form of compensation, and the fact that it's coming in the form of insurance rather than cash would still make a taxable compensation. But for historical reasons, health insurance has been treated differently. If your employer provides you health insurance, that, that benefit, that form of compensation, is not taxable income. Well, what does that do? Well, that provides you an incentive to have more insurance. Suppose your, health, your car insurance was not taxable compensation. Well, my guess is your car insurance, first of all, your employer would start providing it, because you'd rather be getting it tax-free through your uh, through your employer, rather have to pay ca- tax into cash and then, then pay your own, own a car insurance. But think of what the car insurance would look like. If your car insurance was were ta- were subsidized by the tax system, you could get your car insurance to cover things like oil changes, when your tire blowout, In fact, maybe your car insurance can cover every time you need a new tank of gas gas in your your car. So you can imagine that if we we subsidize car insurance, car insurance can start covering more and more things, and that might well provide all sorts of inefficiencies. Well, Similarly, by subsidizing health insurance, economists have suggested that health insurance covers too much. Health insurance should cover catastrophic stuff. If you come down with a disease that's going to cost you $300,000 to cure, that's why you need insurance. But you need insurance for routine things, like when you get a cold or your kid has an earache and he needs to go and just get, be prescribed penicillin. An earache is a little bit like you need an oil change. Right? It's a routine expenditure expenditure. It's not clear why you need insurance to cover that. You need health care, but you don't necessarily need health insurance. And some people have suggested that our tax treatment has led to excessive health insurance, and as a result, it's providing other distortions on our healthcare system. So I think there is a rational policy case for revising our current tax treatment of employer-provided health insurance. So I think those are three uh, deductions, exclusions, loopholes, whatever you want to call them, that I think deserve a serious consideration when we do fundamental tax reform. Let me mention a couple other uh, loopholes that I actually like a little better. But I'm willing to give up in in the spirit of grand compromise. Charitable giving. Contribution. If you give money to charity, if when you leave your students to you give money back to Villanova as a form of charitable contribution, you'll be able to deduct that charitable <laughs> contribution from your taxes and get a tax break for it. So the federal government will pick up part of the tab. I tend to like that. I think it actually encourages charity. We tend to give more charity in the United States than in Europe. I believe tax code may be one reason for that. So I personally am in favor of the charitable giving uh, deduction. Uh, maybe it's because I work for a nonprofit that benefits from it. I don't know, so maybe it's self-interest on my part. Uh, But that's one I personally like, and keep. But in the spirit of grand compromise, we'll have to give that up to get rid of the other ones I'd be willing to do it. Uh, My favorite loophole, personally, are deductions for savings. I actually like things like Kehoe plans, 401k plans, individual retirement accounts, because what it does is it turns our income tax system more into a consumption tax, and encourages people to save and prepare for the future, and specifically for their retirement. So I think that's actually a good thing. But that's something that also should probably be on the table to at least talk about as we reform uh, the tax system. So I think the first way we should think about uh, raising revenue is um, through broadening the base and lowering rates. And those are ways that um, uh, that's sort of the first way we should think about raising revenue. Second way we should think about raising revenue is actually my favorite. And it's called Pigovian taxation. Those of you who read my blog know what this means. There's a great British economist, early part of the 20th century, Arthur Pigou, who argued that some taxes are good. Taxes are usually distortionary, that is they distort incentives and shrink the size of the economic pie, but some taxes can actually improve incentives and expand the size of the economic pie. And In particular, if there's some activity that has adverse side effects on other people, like pollution, then you might want to tax that activity in order to get people to internalize that externality internalize the side effects in order to get incentives to work work right rather than wrong. Now the corrective tax that has received a lot of attention recently is a tax on carbon. Scientists tell me that carbon emissions are a cause of global climate change. I'm not a scientist, so I won't evaluate that as a scientific matter, but if if you believe that scientific consensus and the economic solution to that problem is pretty clear, and that is what you want is a corrective tax on carbon carbon-emitting activities. So I have, in a variety of articles, pushed the idea of a carbon tax. But even if you don't believe in global warming, even if you're a global warming skeptic, I think there's a compelling argument for certain forms of Pogobian taxes beyond carbon taxes. And in particular, certain kinds of activities generate externalities that are much more mundane than global climate change. If you've driven around Boston, and I'm guessing Philadelphia, You've experienced congestion. You've seen car accidents. And one thing that's very clear is the more people out on the road driving, the worse is congestion and the worse are car accidents. What's the solution to that externality? You should have a tax on driving. What's a tax on driving? Well, a tax on gasoline is pretty close to a tax on driving. So even if you don't believe in global climate change, I think is a compelling (coughs) argument for taxing gasoline or, or driving through some other way, such as tolls, in order to reduce the problem of congestion and accidents. Now, Economists who study this have looked at what the optimal tax on gasoline would be. That is, if you look at all these externalities associated with driving, whether it's climate change, congestion, accidents, it's pretty big. Indeed, the, the optimal gasoline tax, according to this economic research, is about $2 a gallon. Right now, the average tax in the United States is about $0.40 cents a gallon. So we, if this research is right, then what we should see is a substantial increase in the gasoline tax in order to fully internalize the externalities associated with driving. And one of the things that sometimes people are worried about is the distributional aspect of higher gasoline taxes. And it's certainly true that the middle class could not be exempted from this. The middle class is, uh, drives a lot, and they would be, they would be, they would be subject by, uh, to this. But the distributional effects are not as adverse as you might first think. First of all, the very poor tend not to drive that much. The rural poor tend to, but the urban poor tends to take public transportation which is much less gasoline intensive. So people who have studied the distributional effects of the gasoline tax find that it's not particularly hard on the poor. But in addition, we could certainly re- rejigger the rest of the tax system with the, t- with the revenue we got from a gasoline tax to achieve whatever distribution of the tax burden you want across the income classes. So I, so one of the first things I would look at in terms of looking for revenue is to look at higher Pogovia taxes, such as a higher, higher gasoline tax, as part of the package. What about something even bolder like a value-added tax? Europe has a much bigger government than we have, and one of the ways they pay for it is through something called a value-added tax. And what a value-added tax is, is a tax basically on consumption. It's a little bit like a retail sales tax that many states have, but rather than being collected only at the retail store level, it's collected along the chain of production as as each firm creates a good and adds value value to that good. But the economic effects are very similar to a retail sales tax. People who have studied, economists who have studied this, tend to think it's a fairly efficient tax. It's a relatively low distortionary way of raising large amounts of revenue. It tends to be uh, unpopular in some circles. Uh, uh, the, the, in particular, conservatives tend to view it as a hidden tax, because it's not obvious to, to, to voters, they argue. And they're afraid that a value-added tax would make it too easy for government to grow, and they often point to Europe. Another interpretation, though, is that Europe chooses a value-added tax not because it's a hidden tax and it's allowed government to grow secretly, rather Europe has chosen a bigger government, needs an efficient way to pay for it, and has chosen a value-added tax to pay for it. And I think an interesting question is whether we will move to a value-added tax in the United States as government spending rises over time. Different people have said nice things about value-added tax at different points in time. Nancy Pelosi uh, once. Said positive things about a value-added tax in an interview with Charlie Rose. Paul Ryan, from from the right, has, has never actually endorsed a value-added tax per se, but well, he ref, he endorsed a reform that eliminated the corporate income tax in favor of what he he called a business activities tax. But the, if you look at his business activity tax, it's a very close cousin of a value-added tax. So I think a value-added tax is something that probably will be on the agenda and something we need need to think about. Uh, one of the if you If you only remember one line about a value-added tax, maybe the line to remember is something I learned from Larry Summers, one of my colleagues at Harvard. He once said, um, the Republicans don't like a value-added tax because it's a money machine, and the Democrats don't like a value-added tax when it's regressive. Um, We'll finally get a value-added tax when uh, Democrats realize it's a money machine, and Republicans realize it's regressive. (laughs) So I don't know if that's exactly the right politics of it, but it's it's, it's a a good one-liner. There are a variety of other tax issues that we're going to face, such as what should we do with the corporate income tax and both President Obama and Mitt Romney have suggested that we should, we should lower the statutory corporate tax rate, which in the United States is now uh, one of the highest in the world. Um, they differ in some important details of what kind of corporate income tax they would like to see, which we can talk about during the Q&A session. Um, they also differ in terms of what they think about the estate tax, which I'm also happy to talk about during the Q&A session if you want. I have opinions on that. But I think that one of the big questions we face as we go forward is to what extent do we want to solve this fiscal imbalance on the spending side, and to what extent do we want to solve this fiscal imbalance on the tax side? And presumably the political compromise will be some of each, and what this election is about, as are all elections, about which is about which, which, is, which it's going to be. But this brings me to my last big risk that I want to talk about, which is France, What did I mean by saying, I'm I'm worried about becoming France? What's so wrong about France? Don't they have like really good coffee? Uh, Well, what do we know about France? What we know about continental Europe in general, it's not just France, it's Germany as well, several other continental European countries, is they don't work as much as Americans. Hours worked over a lifetime in France is lower than the United States. They retire earlier, they have more vacation days, they have more holidays. Along all the different margins you might think about, they shorter work weeks. Well, almost every margin I think about, the French work less than Americans. And as a result, because they work less, they have lower incomes and lower material standards of living. Well, Why is that? Well, there's a debate among economists as to why it is that continental Europeans work less than um, Americans. Some economists think it's the powerful unions in France and and in Europe that have negotiated that. Others think it's just differences in tastes between uh, Americans and Europeans. But one hypothesis associated most prominently with the Nobel Prize winner, Ed Prescott, <coughs> is that it's taxes. Taxes are higher in continental Europe than they are in the United States. And as a result, people respond to those tax incentives. Now, I don't know if Prescott's right, but I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a very plausible hypothesis. Now, the reason I'm worried about doing too much on the tax side is I'm worried about becoming France. I am worried that Ed Prescott might be correct and that if we raise taxes to French-like levels to pay for the inevitable increases in government spending that will will happen under the current law, then Americans will start working like French do, which means your generation, and particularly your kid's generation, and your grandkids' generation, will spend a lot more time sitting outside drinking cappuccino in cafes, and a little less time at work, earning an income, and growing the economy. But that's the hypothesis that we face. East Prescott right. And are we going to go the way of France. I hope we don't, but that is in some sense what this election, all elections are about. To what extent do we want a big government and to what extent do we want small government? Um, And let me sort of stop there. And um, I I wanted to leave some time for questions. I probably went on longer than I expected to, but um, thank you for listening. I'm happy to take questions on anything I said or anything I didn't say. Thank you very much.
0: What extent do you think that the current situation that we're in is a spending problem versus a revenue problem? Looking at past trends and and, and going forward, because I know you mentioned externalities, you know, how much do you think a two dollar gas tax would hinder the economy? You know, because there's certainly going to be externality of uh, slow, you know, less people driving, maybe less people delivering. You know, comment on that, please. Well, I I, I think any.
1: And we need to sort of come into a. We need, we need to bring spending and taxes in line in the long run. I think anything we do can't be done quickly. It has to be phased in gradually. And in particular, the fiscal cliff that's facing January 1, which is a substantial tax increases and in spending cuts, having in a draconian way, is something that I don't know any economist think that's a good thing. And I don't think any politician thinks it's a good thing. It's something they put in place to force themselves to do something before it happened. Um, uh, whether that was a good idea or not is, is, is a political matter, really. It's sort of like strapping a bomb to yourself and, and in order to force yourself to do something. I mean, it, maybe it'll force you to do it, but you, if the bomb goes off, you'll be very unhappy. Um, so it, the problem with a lot of commitment devices is sometimes you can come to regret them. So I think any of these things would have to be phased in gradually. I don't think anybody suggests $2 gasoline taxes. We should do it tomorrow, overnight. I think something's gonna happen to be phased in gradually. Now the question is, do we have a spending problem, do we have a revenue problem? I think that's really what—that's a political question, not an economic question. I think we have—we have, we have we, what we have is a, a situation where the American people has promised themselves a certain level of benefit, and a certain also promised themselves a certain level of taxation, uh, and uh, the laws of arithmetic do not allow both those promises to be kept. Uh, and so the question is, which which of those are they going to decide to revise? You mentioned that the uh, mortgage mortgage interest deductible um, favors the wealthy more than the middle class overall. So, what would you say to the prospect of, say, change how we apply it in order to help the middle class, and middle class? Like, say, if you buy a home more than a million dollars, that won't, the mortgage deductible won't apply
0: to you. Do we have to do that, or I'm not sure how that yeah.
1: works. So the way it works right now, actually, is you can deduct interest on a mortgage up to one million dollars. So one thing you could so basically it's subsidizing large homes. Now, a typical, remember, a typical middle-class family earns about fifty thousand a year. No middle-class family is earning fifty thousand dollars a year is buying has a million-dollar mortgage. They just don't. So you could easily lower the more, the, the eligible eligible mortgage for that from a million dollars a year to say three hundred thousand dollars a year, and you wouldn't affect a single middle-class family. Um, so I think there's there's, there's, there's ways we could do that. Indeed, I think some of the proposals out there allowed. Uh, completely eliminate the mortgage deduction, but they, they, they scaled it substantially back and raised revenue that way in order to affect the middle class less than, than the wealthy. But the simplest way is take someone take that million dollar number and lower it to three hundred thousand or some other sort of number that's that that would leave the middle class eligible but not the, not the wealthy.
0: Hi, do you have a, a particularly strong opinion on the alternative minimum tax?
1: Yeah, the alternative minimum tax. Yeah, the, it, it, it's kind of crazy, in my view to say, oh, we have a tax system, oh, but in case that tax system doesn't work have another one, and then some people even propose an alternative maximum tax, and you don't really want a tax system that has alternative tax systems. I mean, if we don't like the results of our tax system, we should change our tax system and not have an alternative tax system that's backed up with of the first tax system. So I think the whole the whole design, I mean, someone, I forget who said that we, we should have a tax system that looks like somebody designed it on purpose. <laughs> and, and. know, um, the third minutes tax doesn't look like something designed on purpose. It looks like something that sort of happened arbitrarily over a period of years. This is sort of why I don't like the Buffett tax idea either. It's saying like, oh, in case we don't like you know, we're art, and we're gonna tax lower capital gains, but if we don't like that, we're gonna have a Buffett tax on top of that. Instead sort of creating alternatives, to alternatives. I'd rather sort of think of a simple broad-based system um, and get it right the first time rather than sort of a bunch of backstubs. Uh, I know Governor Romney has proposed a territorial tax system. Um, but hasn't really talked about it too much. What's your opinions on that, and can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, yeah I, I mentioned briefly that both um, Mitt Romney and President Obama have proposed reducing the corporate tax rate. One of the differences they face is to what extent you want, how, how you deal with income that US multinationals earn abroad. Okay, and, and this, this is the, what the issue of whether you want a global system or a territorial system. Most nations in the world have what's called a territorial system, which means they only try to tax economic activity within their borders. We have a global system, which means we we tax not only activities within our borders, but also if a company is incorporated in the United States and is operating abroad, we try to tax its income abroad in the United States. Now, the question is, should we do that? And here's why I am inclined to think we shouldn't and We should have a territorial system rather than a global system. One of the least consequential things about a corporation is where it's incorporated. So that is the fact. I mean, you know, General Motors is a U.S. company, Toyota is a, is a Japanese company, but they both have plants all around the world. They both sell all around the world. The fact that one's incorporated in the United States and one's incorporated in Japan really doesn't, from an economics, it's, I mean, it's a legal important legal distinction, but it doesn't have, it's not an important economic distinction. And so by by, by and so, when I'm, so I'm inclined to think that therefore the place of incorporation of a business should not be a key thing in how we treat, tax it. So if Toyota operates a plant in the United States, we should tax it. If General Motors operates a plant in the United States, we should tax it. But well let's suppose General Motors and Toyota operate a plant in Mexico. Well if, we, if they, they both operate a plant in Mexico, the United States tries to tax it because it's, it's a US incorporated corporation. The United States doesn't try to tax Toyota's play in Mexico, because you can't, because it's a Japanese company in Mexico, so we have no jurisdiction. But why should we treat Toyota and, and General Motors so asymmetrically? So I'm inclined to think that we should say the place of incorporation is really not an interesting thing from a tax standpoint. Let's tax activity that's in our border and realize that things that are coming, that's happening outside our border is for that country to tax, not for us to tax. Now, of course, when... General Motors, when when there's income that accrues to an individual who owns stock in General Motors, that's of course then a U.S. individual, getting that's another issue. But in terms of the corporate tax, I'm inclined to move toward the territorial system.
0: Hi. I've read some of the writings and work of Dr. Thomas Sowell, and my understanding is that there are a number of periods, 1920s, 1960s, 1980s, 2000s, where there are specific examples where tax rates were lowered and we saw economic growth accelerate, do you think there's, is is there evidence of causation or correlation, chicken and egg? Maybe you could talk on that a little bit and how that might play out today.
1: Yeah, I think it's very hard to to simply look at the macroeconomic data and say, ah, see, the effects of tax policy on the economy is thus and so because there's so many things that affect the economy beyond tax policy that it's really, it's really a very, very difficult problem of what, what comes call identification. You know, those of you have have, who have taken econometrics courses know the identification problem is basically trying to sort out cause and effect, and <coughs> not simply looking at raw correlations. And I think it's a very, very hard tax policy to do that. And that's what the whole field of applied public finance is about, is trying to figure out what's the causal effect of taxes on a variety of, of economic activity. But simply looking at sort of the macro data and coming to any conclusion is, um, I think, too facile. So let me give you an example of that 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 tears my hair all the time. You often hear people say, well, you know, raising taxes from 35 to 39.6% on the rich is not going to have any effect. Look, Clinton did it, and we had a great boom in the 90s. Well, that's true. He did do it. We did have a great boom in the 90s. We also had an internet bubble in the 90s. I don't think anybody thinks the internet bubble was irrelevant to the events of the 90s. I don't think anybody thinks that the internet bubble was caused by the increase in the marginal tax rate from 35 to 39.6%. So you might, I mean, so whether it's true or false that raising the tax from 39 to 39.6 is a good idea or a bad idea, I, I'm not even gonna pine on that, other than the fact that that argument really is just too superficial to be to possibly be compelling for, for anybody. Um, and similarly, the fact that Reagan cut tax and then we had a boom after Reagan. Well, lots of other things happened too. We also have this inflation, uh, following Paul Volcker, and you gotta correct for lots and lots of things. So I'm I'm very nervous about quick and easy arguments about taxes of taxes the economy. Anybody, anybody who tells you these, these issues are easy is probably somebody you should be a little suspicious of, whether that's Tom Sowell on the right or Paul Krugman on the left. I won't need a Okay. No, (laughs) another question.
0: (laughs) All right, you were advocating the uh, value-added tax pretty hard, but don't you believe
1: that like raises uh, inequality issues? Because if you look at the poor, they consume all the money they have, Uh, as opposed to a rich person who just uh, sits on their money and lives off the interest, and doesn't pay value-added tax for that. What do you um, think about that? Um, let me talk about the issue of inequality in general. Um, I I think when you think about a value-added tax, you've got to think about a value-added tax together with everything else the government's doing. So I don't think you want to look at that in isolation. You've got to look at that together with whatever other taxes and transfer systems we have. So for example, Europe has a pretty big value-added tax in most of Europe, but also uses that to fund a very generous welfare state. so I think so. You can't sort of look at that in isolation. But let me sort of. You raised the issue of inequality, which is something I didn't get a chance to cover. But I think it's in some sense the most interesting and, and important topic we face. The whole Occupy Wall Street movement was all about how you think of any economic inequality. In um, I gave my my lecture yesterday in my introductory economics class on exactly the economics of inequality. I think it's a very difficult issue, and I think that we don't fully understand the causes of it. And I think that to what and I think there's a debate among economists as to what extent should we treat this symptoms, and to what extent should we look at the causes. I think some people look at this, they, one thing that's very clear is inequality has risen very substantially from the 1970s to the present. Um, the question is what should we do about it? Some people have the view that we should therefore have a much more progressive tax system in order to redistribute income. Other people think we should look at the, look at the sources of inequality and try to address those. Those are not going to be addressed easily. Think to the extent you think there are things with the sources. It's going to be things like increasing educational attainment, which is not cheap or easy. One of the things that in the rise in inequalities have been very clearly associated with is a rise in the rate of return to education, not only in college, which is going, the rate of return to college has gone up a lot, but also the rate to graduate school. So all these students thinking about graduate school, the rate of return to go to graduate school is quite high. So the question is, how do we provide the incentive for more people to get more education? That's a Difficult long-term issue. I'm not an expert in the economics of education, but that's personally where I think the most energy should be directed.
0: Hi, a question about the minimum wage. Um, so there's been a social movement, kind of small, but there has been one, kind of to increase the minimum wage. And I was wondering if you could comment on the the effect that raising the minimum wage, say say a dollar or so, would have on the economy and on standard of living.
1: Yeah, I tend to I understand the concern about people at the bottom of the income distribution um, and, it, and the question is what's the best policy tools we have to address that. Over time, I think there's been a consensus among people both the right and left that, that things like the earned income tax credit is less distortionary than increases in the minimum wage. And we have seen substantial increases over time in the income tax credit <laughs> over the past 15, 20 years. My worry about high minimum wage is that it tends to cause high unemployment. Now there's a debate among economists as to what extent that's true. Um, and I, I appreciate that, that debate. So I don't, I, don't say, I don't express my opinion with tremendous certainty. But my fear is that when more we increase the minimum wage, the harder it's going to be for the least skilled workers to, to make an entry into the, the workforce. Let me give you a concrete example. Unpaid internships. I'm guessing some of the students here have had unpaid internships. My guess is that many of you thought those unpaid internships were a useful use of your time. There have been some people in the Department of Labor who said unpaid internships should be illegal because they are a violation of the minimum wage law. Now how would you feel if, just before you we were to take the unpaid internship, the Department of Labor official stepped in and said, I'm sorry, you've got to pay this person $8 an hour, and the person giving the unpaid internship say, I'm sorry, they therefore we can't offer you the internship. Would you have felt like the government was doing you a favor? Probably not. And my fear in general about increases in the minimum wage is that that's what it's doing. It's providing, it's, it's stopping people from getting a foot in the door. Uh, <laughs> it's probably not going to affect people like at Villanova, because you guys have to graduate here. You're not going to be subject to the minimum wage laws. But it's the kind of kids who d- couldn't get into Villanova who are going to try to get those minimum wage jobs and find that there are fewer of them there the minimum wage is higher.
0: Do you think that the real issue is, obviously it's not simple, but looking at the United States government and everyone's complaining that they can do nothing because no one cooperates, do you think that it's more of an, uh, a psychological issue um, that we need to look at You know, from an economic perspective even? like How do we change the minds of people to work together? Because I think um, when it comes to these tax implementations, everyone can talk about the different types of tax systems and everyone knows what they do. Um, but it's just a matter of getting them implemented and trial and error. Um, do you really think that, you know, Romney will do something different um, or Obama will do something different in his next four years that's really gonna show something? What, what do you think is gonna be done? Do you think it's a system issue?
1: Um, well, let me say two things. One is I, I'm a big believer in economics education. I, I ultimately believe that our political leaders are better probably described as political followers in the sense they do what the people want. And so if I'm, if I'm, why, why is it that we don't have $2 gas taxes? Because people don't want $2 gas taxes. And the reason, the reason I write op-eds about $2 gas taxes. I figure if I can convince enough people, our political leaders will find, finally find the arguments more compelling. Because really our leaders do what the people want. We live in a democracy. That's the first thing to say. The second thing I want to say about sort of political gridlock, there's been lots of talk about political gridlock, how you know, Washington's not functioning well, and it, look, these guys can't get anything done, and they a bunch of jokers down there, why can't they do anything, why can't they work together, yada, yada, yada. I've heard all those arguments, and I actually have a lot of sympathy with those arguments, but let me remind you of something. The founders of this country were very wise. They didn't want Washington to work well. They didn't want government to do things easily, because they were afraid if things were easy to get done in Washington, that means that somebody could get in power and exercise that authority in in ways that weren't necessarily good for the American people. They wanted things to be hard. They didn't want any individual to be able to implement his agenda easily or simply. So I remember when I was working in Washington for for a couple of years as as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, I found the job very frustrating because it was very hard to get stuff done. But the thing to keep in mind is to step back and say, yes, Madison was very smart. He wanted my job to be frustrating. My job being frustrating is not a bug, it's a feature. And if you think if you think of it that way, the frustration is a little easier to take, and so the, the gridlock it's part of the process, but it's probably better than the alternative of giving too much power and uh, making the system, the system work too easily.
0: Um, just first of all, Professor Mankiew, I'd like to say thank you. I'm a regular blog reader and uh, very excited. Um, but anyhow, uh, largely among the econ blogosphere, there amongst members of the right and the left, um, you know, namely Paul Krugman, <coughs> Scott Sumner, uh, and some others, there's been a little bit of a consensus, um, which Michael Woodford backed recently in support of nominal GDP targeting as a monetary policy rule.
1: And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. He yeah, has a topic I've written about for a long time. I think I, Bob Paul and I wrote a paper about nominal GDP targeting back in, in 1994, it was. Um, I think it has some some merit as a as a, as a policy framework. I, I think there's two things to think about. One is you can announce a, a target path, and the question is then, what do you do to hit it? That's how do you go from say a policy framework saying this is my nominal GDP P, 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 GDP path to like what do I do today in terms of federal funds rates, um, quantitative easing, and so on—the stuff that the day-to-day operational tools they have. I think that hasn't been fully spelled out. I think that the people who write about this are, make a little, seem a little too magical that all of a sudden you announce nominal GDP targets, people's expectations will suddenly change, and the economy will become rosy again. And I, I, I worry that that may make things sound a little easier than it is. But I think it's one of the policy frameworks out there that deserves consideration in the same way that inflation targeting sort of took the world of central banking by storm over the past 10, 15 years. Okay, one more question. it got to be a really good
0: one. <laughs> um, I just had a question. Um, do you see any concern to a potential bubble forming within high-yield bonds with you know, investors, with the rates being so low, having basically free access to cash, uh, which you know, possibly could lead to you know, some defaults within the asset class? Uh, well, I that I'm not
1: I'm an expert on that. But uh, yeah, I, mean, I think whenever rates are low and people start reaching for yield, there's a risk that that risk preferences will be that, that people will sort take undue risks. Um, so you can imagine that so those risk spreads will get too too narrow. That's always a, that's always kind of a, a risk. I my, should my, my, know by the way. If, if, if somebody's looking for willing to take on a little more risk, though, stocks look not so bad right now, right? Price earnings ratios are better than they've been for a very long time. Um, so if somebody just wants to say, look, I don't, I don't like all this cash earnings zero percent. I want to take a little more risk. Yeah, high yield bonds may be one way to do it, but you know, putting a little of the money in the stock market in a diversified index fund kind of way um, would probably make a little more, more sense than putting too much into high yield, which is a pretty narrow asset class. Thank you very much.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.